Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on November 7th by our lead pastor, Rod Heppel. Today is the eighth sermon in our Fall 2021 sermon series entitled, Acts, You Will Be My Witnesses. Check out sardisfellowship.com for more information about our church. Our theme verse in this sermon series is Acts 1.8, where the words of Jesus say this to those first apostles. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, if you've been with us for the last number of weeks as we've been going through the book of Acts, you will know that the author is Luke. Uh, He was a companion of the Apostle Paul, and he's putting together this accurate account of the details of um, the stories that happen after the life of Jesus in the life of the Apostles, but it's really the acts of God that he is doing through those first witnesses, the apostles. And the recipient of this letter is a governing official named Theophilus. And the reason why Luke is giving him this accurate account is that he wants Theophilus to know with certainty that it's true, the things that he has heard about Jesus Christ. And in particular, the resurrection and the difference it makes. And the fact that this was the plan of God, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah who would restore Israel and that the gospel would come through Israel to all nations, including Theophilus himself as a Gentile. Now, this witness of the apostles, it says, starts in Jerusalem, but then it will work its way out. And we put up these concentric circles at one time earlier in this series from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And that's what we're going to be seeing in today's story is this progression of things moving outward. But I want to make this point about this new thing that God is doing through the coming of the Holy Spirit and the establishing of the church. It's really the fulfillment of the old thing that God was doing. And we're going to see a bit of that in today's uh, sermon as well. Um, The old thing is about the restoration of Israel so that they would realize that this new thing that God is doing was the plan that Israel would be saved, and through Israel, all nations, Samaritans, Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. So we're going to see this happening in our story today. Um, It revolves around, our story today revolves around a guy named Philip, and there's two stories that we're going to look at. Now, Philip was introduced two weeks ago when we heard about the seven that were appointed to go and help serve food to the Greek widows. He was in that list. You might remember Stephen. We talked about Stephen last week. So Philip is a Greek-speaking Jewish Christian. And much like Stephen, who was asked to go and wait on tables, eventually their role changed. And it incorporated so much more. And we're going to see that God uses these ones for doing signs and wonders and preaching the gospel and baptizing in Jesus' name. Now, You might remember that we left our story last week with Stephen where where he died because he stood up for his faith. And Rob talked about what is the hill that we're willing to die on. And for Stephen, it was not compromising on Jesus and the resurrection of Christ. And the fact that when he spoke to his people about the fact that they had denied the Messiah, that Jesus was the resurrected Messiah, that for that he died. They stoned him. He was indeed the first martyr of the church, aside, of course, from Jesus Christ himself. Now, where we left the story was, it says in chapter 758, that those who went and stoned Stephen to death laid their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, let's pick up our story in chapter 8, verse 1. 
On that day, a great persecution broke out, broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Well, up until now, the church has enjoyed this community meeting together in the temple courts um, every day and, and enjoying that kind of fellowship, but that quickly came to an end. They were scattered due to this persecution. If these authorities, the Sanhedrin, had the power to put Stephen to death, who would be next? And what a scary thought, right? To have to flee for your life, to gather a few of your belongings and escape out into the more remote areas of the countryside just to hide from those who are trying to hunt you down. And this scenario has been repeated many times over for Christians in various places in the world at various times. But what I want you to notice is that they fled where? Out of the city of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. Which, of course, is really interesting because that's exactly what Jesus said would happen, that the gospel would go out. Now, it's going out through persecution. And maybe it took persecution in order to push this group out of the city of Jerusalem. Now, there's an interesting note here. It says that the apostles stayed. Everyone else scattered. So why would that be the case? Case. The most likely explanation is that the attack that was coming against Stephen was against, um, it was from a Greek synagogue, or Greek-speaking Jewish synagogue, and they, they brought the attack against um, Stephen and stoned him to death. And, and so it seems like possibly it was more of an attack that was carried on by the followers who were the Greek-speaking ones who would then have to flee, whereas they maybe left the Jewish, Hebraic ones, which would be the apostles, they left them alone. Now it mentions here that Saul was going out and destroying the church. He was going house to house house, hunting down both men and women, dragging them off to prison. And, and I just, you know, sometimes we read that over and we just glance at it. But think about it. Again, how fearful it would be. Imagine those early Christians going, man, this guy is zealous. He doesn't just take the men. He takes the women too. And he puts them in prison. So just kind of picture the intensity of this persecution. But remember this too, as we're going to see in our story that it's in the hard times that God shows up. It's in those moments that he redeems them to use for good. Because as they scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, they began sharing the gospel, the good news of Christ, and it spread. And that's where our two stories come in today. So Philip goes to Samaria, which is a region north of Judea and the capital city of Jerusalem. But to get from Jerusalem, which is up on a hill, you go down to Samaria. And so uh, here's just a little drawing, if that helps you to see that just beside the Dead Sea, a little to the west, you'll see it say Judea, and then Jerusalem, very small print. But then you head north, and you'll see Samaria. And uh, that's where our, our first story with Philip is taking place in Samaria. So here's how it's termed. Those who had been scattered preached the word everywhere they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. 
So what we note here is that he preaches that Jesus is the Messiah. Crowds heard him. He performed signs like paralyzed people walking and impure spirits coming out of people. And people did what? Oh, they paid close attention to the message. Now we see this pattern in Acts. We've talked about it before. Where God is doing something new. And in that newness, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he's drawing attention and validating the message and the messenger. And we see that here with Philip too. Noting that Philip was not one of the apostles, but rather one of the seven who were called to serve on tables. God is validating the message through these miracles. People listen closely and they believe. Now, amongst the, these people, the crowd, there was one who stood out. His name is Simon, and um, he's a sorcerer, a magician. And he's quite wowed by what he sees Philip doing and saying. So let's take a look at this. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. So he wasn't just kind of a one-hit wonder. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God uh, and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. So note that this guy, Simon, was really good at his craft. Uh, so much so, and he'd done it for a long time, that you know people really um, thought highly of him. Now, he boasted about himself being someone great. Um, he, he had this persona about him that he was this great power of God whether the people came up with that or whether he came up with it boasting about himself and they bought in nonetheless it seemed to be understood and this kind of have a, has a bit of a sense that this guy wasn't just an entertainer that what he was doing was on a spiritual realm and that he had power over the people as like a spiritual leader now Simon himself was amazed at Philip's power Wow, so much though that I, I think that he thinks he was outdone by what he saw with Philip and what he heard. And it says here in the text that he believed and was baptized along with the other people. But note that he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. There, there seems something to be in here where maybe, maybe Simon was more about the power and more about Philip than he was about Jesus Christ himself. Now, news of the Samaritans coming to faith in Jesus spread back to Jerusalem, and the leadership there thought that they should send down Peter and John to check it out. Or so it seems. We're not told exactly why they came, but they came. Obviously, they've heard, and they want to see what's going on. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So, you know, we wonder about this. Like, why the delay? I mean, if they were baptized in Jesus' name, they believed in Jesus, why did the Holy Spirit not come right away? 
Why were, was there this delay? Now, we need to remember that whenever God is doing something new, um, there's a certain reason uh, behind it. And what seems to be evident here is that there is a newness of the gospel coming to the people of Samaria. So this isn't just the Jerusalem people and the Jews that were there. This is now moving outward. And this is part of the reason as to there's this delay, and we'll get to that. But first we need to understand a little bit about who the Samaritan people are. Um, because you might not be familiar with that term or who they are. You might remember the story of the Good Samaritan. And if you do, you might remember that the Jewish people looked pretty down on those Samaritan people because they were like half Jews. So they occupied a middle position. They were neither fully Jews, but nor were they merely Gentiles. They are a part of the northern kingdom of Israel, but not a part of Judea and, and Benjamin in the southern part. Okay? They've intermarried with other uh, groups of people, and so they're, they're kind of seen in a, a lesser light than the people in Jerusalem who were more Hebraic Jews. They did adhere to the law of Moses, but they didn't adhere to the rest of the prophets. They did believe in a coming Messiah, but they had their own place of worship. It was not Jerusalem. So for these reasons, uh, they were looked down upon by the, the other Jews. They were looked upon as half-Jews and heretical. But, you know, the animosity went from the Samaritans back to the Hebraic Jews as well in Jerusalem. It wasn't just a one-way thing. There was a tremendous amount of animosity and hatred that flowed freely back and forth between the two groups. We've already seen that the unity of the church had been tested, threatened, when the Greek-speaking widows were being overlooked. A few weeks ago we looked at that, right? And they navigated through that. But here we have a situation where it could be this. Um, in order to make sure that those Jewish believers in Jerusalem knew that those Samaritans had truly come to Christ, it seems like Peter and John go down to validate, yes, they have. They had not received the Spirit, so why not? Well, it seems purposeful for God to delay that because he wanted that to be the sign of unity. I mean, it was the sign of the inclusion of those first believers in Acts chapter 2 into being into the body of Christ. And now, with the coming of the apostles, what seems to be uh, indicated here is that it's a validation that those Samaritans are truly part of this broader community. That it isn't two separate churches, it is one church, not two. And it's maybe even validating for those Samaritan Christians to now realize that they too have been accepted into this broader community of faith, which has predominantly met in Jerusalem. You know, Philip is not operating on his own. He's not out there doing his own thing and out of sync with the rest of the apostles' teaching and the work that God is doing. It's, it's a togetherness, and this shows the unity of that. Well, when Simon saw the coming of the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands of the apostles, he wanted that too. Uh, so here's how it's put. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given by the laying on of hands of the apostles, he offered them money. Brilliant strategy here. And he said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands uh, may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness 
and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Now, this is kind of like strong language. What's all going on here with Simon's faith, right? Peter seems a little bit harsh. Let's take a look at this. First of all, Simon believed Philip and the message because he was baptized, right? That's what the text tells us. And now it seems like he's being told that he will perish with his money. So was he saved or was he not saved? That's kind of one of the questions we always kind of go to in a situation like this. Now I have to be clear here. I'm not sure that we can really fully answer that question from this passage of Scripture. However, we do want to look at it more closely because there are things here that we need to observe and to learn from. It is obvious that he has made a serious mistake or misjudgment in thinking that he could buy this gift of God, the power of God. And we have to understand he's probably just taking his other context of how he would go about adding and inquiring greater power in his sorcery because he could purchase magical formulas for that. And it seems that he was now thinking that this is the way that God works and operates. So on the one hand, you could kind of go, oh, the guy's just, you know, he's a pagan and he has this other context and he's just taking that context and he's applying it to this one. But it also might be really telling that this guy, by that answer, has shown that he completely misunderstands God and maybe he completely misunderstands what salvation is. You know, in Haiti, we learned about voodoo priests and how they went about acquiring more power over the people. Of course, it's a very dark practice, and um, they had various levels of power based on whether or not they, the priests, were willing to make certain sacrifices in order to get the power of the spirits. And especially when a voodoo priest died, it's like there were spirits up for grab if you were willing to make the sacrifice to have those spirits. And the way they indicated their level of power is they would have sticking out of their side of their homes these poles with flags on the end of the poles. And the colors and the number of flags indicated the kind of power uh, and the amount of power that that voodoo priest had. It's interesting to note that Simon the sorcerer here was trying to acquire um, more tools in his toolkit for being a magician, a sorcerer. Now, he did not drop dead as Ananias did when, uh, when he made his mistake with his understanding of what money could do in spiritual matters. But nonetheless, the rebuke is still extremely strong, and we wonder about that. Peter is warning Simon, if you don't repent, there's serious consequences that are coming. And I think that's the bottom line here. He's not saying that he can't be forgiven of his sins. I mean, he's probably uh, projecting more onto Simon how hard it might be for him to actually have that change of heart that's genuinely needed for repentance. That could be in this passage here in Peter's rebuke. But the obviousness of what he's trying to do is to help him understand your heart is not right with God, and that's an indicator of it. And that needs to be made right with God. It can be made if you truly repent. You know, it's sad to know this piece of history that early church writers wrote about Simon. And unfortunately, the picture it paints of him is that he went back to his sorcery and he took that craft he had to Rome where he gained yet a, a greater following. So it could be that Simon never learned the truth of this repentance, even though it seems very sincere that he's asking for Peter to pray for him that none of this of what you have said will come true. Even that might be a bit telling that 
just asking that the consequences might come. Do you understand the nature of repentance? So there's definitely, I would say, a, a bit of a dark cloud that's cast over the sincerity of heart of Simon the sorcerer here. But here's the reason that we can ascertain from why Luke is using this. Beyond the story of the sorcerer and his own kind of misunderstanding of how God works and operates, it's very clear that there is the advancement of the gospel going out from Jerusalem to Samaria. You know, to Judea, to Samaria. And here we're seeing that. And then the second part is that there's this unity factor. There's this oneness of the church, which now, now clearly includes two groups that had previously been very hostile. Uh, they had a cordial hatred towards each other. And now it's like, no, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And by the apostles coming and laying on the hands and the Holy Spirit coming, that was a sign of that unity that they had with the Jerusalem church. I think it's also interesting to note that the Apostle John was one of the two that was there. And the reason why it's interesting to note is because earlier in the Gospels, there's an account of James and John, the two brothers, where they're going through Samaria and they weren't allowed to go through this one town. And John says to Jesus, do you want me to call down fire from heaven, basically to burn up this town? And now John is calling down the Spirit of God to unite these people in with himself and all the Jewish believers in Jesus Christ. Truly, it's an amazing story, and it pictures this oneness. So Luke's purpose of this story, really, the gospel spreads out to Samaria, and they're one with the Jerusalem church, one church, not two. You know, the question I had coming out of that story is what might be some of the racial tensions that God might want us to overcome in our times? To think we don't have them would be to be blinded to it. We need to be aware, and we need to work as those early Christians did to overcome the racial biases that they had to. Take a look how the story ends. After they, Peter and John, had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. And if you know the gospel of, of Luke or, or the other gospels, you know that prior to the cross, there's no way they were going to go into these villages to meet amongst the people. They they were separated from them. And, and here what we see is that they get it. Peter and John realize that the gospel is for all people and they're going in and out of these Samaritan villages preaching the gospel. So that's our first story. Now we come to our second story with Philip in Acts 8. While the last story took place in the north, this one takes place in the south. And while the last story uh, kind of just happened because this, this gathering of the, of the believers, this one is very much directed by God and by his spirit. And while the first story included crowds of people who came to faith in Christ, this story is about one person, an Ethiopian official. So let's take a look at this story. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out. And on his way, he met an Ethiopian, Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Candake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. So let's just pause for a second here and look at some of these details. The angel sends Philip from a populated area where he's had a lot of success in evangelizing people, and he sends him to a very unusual place, 
to a desert road. I mean, how do you obey that command when it doesn't seem to make sense? But Philip did. And so he goes. He meets there this Ethiopian eunuch, uh, an important official in the palace of the queen. And I think this is really important to understand. You see, at this time, this, uh, well, first of all, I'll say that it says Ethiopian. It's not modern-day Ethiopia. It would be more like modern-day Sudan. Um, and he, was, he played an important role. And that was that he served this, um, not, not, it's not a name of the queen, but it's like the queen and her, um, her dynasty, the reign that has gone on for years. And so he's serving both a literal queen, but also of the uh, official name of this dynasty. So it, the whole point is that it's not just one little palace in one little place. It's like this rich dynasty, and he has this position and this power overseeing the treasury. The guy has status. He is an important person. Now, he's heading home from being in Jerusalem. What was he doing there? Well, he was worshiping. So we ask the question, well, who was this guy? Why was he in Jerusalem worshiping? There's kind of a couple of options. Was he a Jew who lived abroad, like part of the diaspora, uh, just coming home, so to speak? Or, or was he a Gentile who had heard about the God of the Jews and had converted to Judaism or had embraced it and, and came there to the city. Now there's lots of dialogue around this, lots of debate. I lean towards the side of the fact that he was truly a Gentile who had embraced Judaism. It says that he's riding a chariot and Philip is to come and uh, run alongside the chariot, told by the Spirit of God, by the angel. And, and so he's on foot. So what that tells us right there is there's quite a discrepancy in social status between Philip and this important official. He, the official, is riding in a chariot. Philip is on foot. The average person got around on foot. If you were a little more to do, you got around on an animal. If you were most to do, you got around in a chariot. And so we see this picture. He was a eunuch. This could mean one of two things. One, it could mean eunuch in the sense of the word where he was castrated. But eunuch also meant one who was an attendant in the court of the, of the royal family. Um, so we're not totally sure exactly, you know, if we know for sure that he was a eunuch in the, in the normal, usual sense of the word being used. But if he was, it even makes this story more understandable as to why Luke has chosen to include it here. If he's talking about... Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, and the gospel and the witness is going to work its way out. Here you have, potentially, a Gentile from a foreign country who is also a eunuch, as in a castrated man, who is now being included into the family of God. And this is really key because the Old Testament, in the, in the law of Deuteronomy, eunuchs who were castrated were excluded from full worship in the temple with the rest of the assembly. However, they were not rejected by God. And Isaiah 56, which maybe, maybe he would read next. Uh, Isaiah, 50, uh, meaning the eunuch might, after reading Isaiah 53, might be next reading Isaiah 56. But this is what he's about to find out if he does read Isaiah 56, where Isaiah says, Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain. I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me, 
and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name. Better than sons and daughters, I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. So while the Old Testament law forbade them from being in the assembly, God had not rejected them. So the whole point here is that if this Gentile eunuch who comes from a foreign land was included, then Luke is trying to point to the fact that look at how the gospel message is going out to all people, to the ends of the earth. Jesus' words are true. Well, let's pick up our story again in Acts chapter 8, verse 30. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man, the eunuch, reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is a passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shear is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. And we know this to be Isaiah 53. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. Okay. So when the Spirit of God is working in someone's life, like he was in the life of the eunuch, he's drawing that eunuch to the place to hear the gospel message. And that's what we're seeing here, right? We just need to be the people of God who are ready and willing to fill in the blank, to help a person take their next step in their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So Philip, he was, he didn't, why would have he ever gone to that road? He was told by the Spirit of God to go there. Why would he ever run alongside a chariot of some important official? Because the Spirit of God told him to go and run alongside that chariot. But then he takes it from there. We're not told that he was told exactly what to say next, but he's running alongside the chariot, and this guy's reading, and he's reading out loud because that was the common practice of the day. Even if you read to yourself, you were to read out loud. That's just what they did. And so he's reading from Isaiah the prophet, and as Philip is hearing him read it, he asks him the question, do you know what you're reading? And the guy's like, how can I? Unless someone helps me understand this and interprets it for me. It's a very difficult and complex passage to understand. And true enough, it really is. But I want you to note where Philip went with that passage of Scripture from Isaiah 53. He, Philip, began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. So Philip knows that this is a fulfillment of Jesus and that passage is going to get him there so that this guy can know that Jesus is the Messiah, who is the Savior, not of just the nation of Israel that's being restored, but for all people, including himself. So from this passage in Isaiah 53, Philip explains that Jesus is this suffering servant who, servant who is the Messiah of Israel. The servant, verses 1 to 3, is rejected by Israel. And verses 4 to 12, he bears the sins of Israel, although he himself is not guilty of sin. 
That's verse 9. He suffers voluntarily. Okay, so Philip takes that and he says, Jesus is the fulfillment of what Israel was supposed to be. And that's why Philip is, is teaching the good news of Jesus from this passage. So as they travel along, they come to some water, and the eunuch says to him, hey, what's stopping me from being baptized? Now, obviously, they've had a broader conversation here. And what seems to make sense is that probably Philip had been filling in some of the testimonies and stories and sermons and preachings that have been going on. Maybe, maybe Philip has shared about what Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, where he said this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. For all whom the Lord God would, would call or will call. And, and, you know, I can't help but think that that kind of a message is what Philip is trying to help this guy understand. That this message is for all whom the Lord will call. Is he calling you? To the eunuch, is he calling you? Is he calling you to the one who has not yet responded to the call of Christ in your own life? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins is the message. And so the eunuch asks the questions, well, what's stopping me from being baptized? It's almost like he's expecting there might be some objection to that, some kind of resistance. Because let's face it, he's probably, as a foreigner and as a eunuch, if in the usual true sense of the word, he might never have been allowed into the very presence of the assembly in Jewish practice. What's stopping me from being baptized? None. None at all. Here's some water. I'll baptize you now. How did Philip know to do that? Philip knew because he understood the gospel. It doesn't take some person with some kind of a degree or status within the church to baptize another person because it's not about the person baptizing it's about the person getting baptized who is declaring publicly, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And because the gospel is for all people who believe in Jesus, even to the very ends of the earth, then the eunuch could be baptized. So, it says this, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again. What did he do? Well, he went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus, or Azotus, <laughs> and he traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea, which you won't hear about Philip again until, I believe it's chapter 21, and he's in Caesarea. Now, it seems that God has transported Philip in some kind of a miraculous way. Uh, this has happened in other times in Scripture. He takes him to another town, but what does he do? This is the thing I want us to see yet again. He is going from town to town preaching the gospel until he reaches his destination in Caesarea. Um, what's our application? This is a lot of information to take in. I, I know that you're not necessarily like reading books and stories on who are the Samaritans and who are people who are Gentiles and eunuchs and from Ethiopia, Sudan, and all this kind of stuff. So what do we take away from it? What seems obvious here is that Luke is showing the gospel message of Jesus Christ is for all people that it has no boundaries. It, it transcends race and culture. And he's giving examples of that. Examples that to even this reader, Theophilus, he would know the tensions that have existed between the Jews and the Gentiles or the Jews and the Samaritans. He would know about this and it would be shocking to hear that now they're one. Now they're part of one united church. 
Yes, they are. And there's no hindrance to a person's being placed in the body of Christ when they have trusted in Jesus Christ based on their race, based on their culture, based on a lot of different things. It's when the trueness of the gospel message of who Christ is and the sincerity of the heart to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they are in Christ. They are baptized into the Holy Spirit. They are placed into the family of God. They are one with each other. And we're going to see that this is the continuing challenge and message of the church as it continues to grow and incorporate all these various Gentile groups that they're going to wrestle through understanding the oneness of the church in Jesus Christ. So some questions I have for you by way of application. Have you come to faith in Jesus Christ? What is it that might be hindering you from receiving God's grace in your own life? For a lot of people, sometimes they think, well, I'm just unworthy. All of us are. That's what God's grace is. It's for those of us who understand our own shortcomings, that we've missed the mark, we've sinned, we've fallen short. Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ? I would encourage you to do so because salvation is found in no other name than Jesus Christ. The second question I have here is, have you been baptized? Because we see here that when the eunuch understood his his situation and who Christ was and his need for him, probably filling in those other pieces of the gospel message about his need for his own sins to be forgiven, he requests to be baptized. Have you declared your faith in Jesus Christ by being baptized? And if not, why not? What is hindering you from publicly declaring that you too are a follower of Jesus Christ? When you're baptized, you're identifying with him in his death and in his resurrection. I encourage you, I invite you, if you want to talk more about this, speak with any of us on staff. We would be delighted to talk with you about your next steps of obedience. And then finally, I'll say this. It seems evident to me from these stories that those early Jewish Christians had a lot of learning and growing and overcoming to do in relationship to their biases towards others, towards half-Jews, towards Gentiles, towards eunuchs, towards foreigners. And so by application, I think that maybe we also might need to be aware, more keenly aware of the role that we need to intentionally play in keeping the unity of the body of Christ in all areas of differences and tensions. And in addition to that, might the spirit of Sardis Fellowship that anyone who is associated with this place or these people, the body of Christ, when we meet with people wherever we go, what is the sense that we're putting off? Are we a people of grace who understands that Jesus Christ has come and the gospel is for all people? And is that the spirit with which we're operating in our encounters and in our ways in which we talk and the ways in which we live and the ways in which we think? May we want to be a part of the story that says, I want to help you experience this amazing good news of Jesus Christ. That by his death and his resurrection, his salvation has come to all people. It wasn't just contained for Israel. It wasn't just contained for Jerusalem. It was to go out to Judea. It was to go out to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's us. What have you done with that message? And I hope that we, those who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, will be acting in the same spirit of inclusion that is in the gospel message for all people who want to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I'd like to lead us in prayer. Our Father in heaven, as we look at your 
amazing story, not just in the Gospels of the life of Christ and his death and his resurrection, but now in the, in the book of Acts and what happened just after that. And the way in which the coming of the Holy Spirit works miracles and empowers believers and directs us to people that need to hear this message. Lord, I just pray that this would become our own heartbeat, that we would be aware of family and friends and neighbors and colleagues at work and people who are, live on our street or wherever we go in our school. Lord, that we might be people ready to be used of you to help someone else understand the good news of Jesus Christ. Get us there, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Here are three discussion questions for you. One, have you ever had an aha moment when you realized how the good news of Jesus is not bound to culture or race? And conversely, have you ever experienced or heard of examples of when Christians have hindered the gospel with cultural boundaries? And lastly, have you declared your faith in Jesus Christ by being baptized? And if not, what makes that step of faith? Thanks for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.